My name's Dr. Gary Crotez, and I'm a coach and author of The Idea Mindset, a book about how to figure out what you want and how to get it. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. When I'm in conversation with my coaching clients, these are the breakthroughs that are so profound that they remember vividly where they were, who they were with, what they were thinking when their unlock moment happened. In this podcast, I'll be meeting and learning about people who have accomplished great things or brought about significant change in their life, and you'll be meeting them with me. We'll be finding out what inspired them, how they got through the hard times, and what they learned along the way that they can share with you. Thank you for joining me on this podcast to hear all about another Unlock Moment. Hello, dear listener, and welcome to another episode of the Unlock Moment podcast. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Amit Patel to the podcast. I've known Amit for very many years, ever since we trained together in medicine 25 years ago. That makes us sound very old. Amit started his career in medicine and trained as a breast and endocrine surgeon working in the NHS. After five years practicing as a doctor in 2007, he decided to switch careers into the consulting and business world first as a consultant and then in corporate roles, ultimately as director of new ventures at the £12 billion revenue international healthcare group, Bupa. He was responsible for incubating, testing and scaling innovative and compelling customer propositions. Now Amit has decided to forge his own path and is the founder of Peachy, the UK's first truly digital health insurance platform targeting millennials and small to medium-sized enterprises. Amit also serves as a board trustee for Independent Age, a charity focused on supporting people in their advanced years to remain independent and live life on their own terms. I'm looking forward to hearing all about what drives Amit and the remarkable moment of clarity that helped him to figure out the path ahead. Amit, it is my great pleasure to welcome you to the Unlock Moment. Ah, oh, thank you so much, Gary. And um you're making me feel feel old with the 25 years uh, that we've known each other. But I'm um, delighted to, to, to see you again and, and hear your voice again after a good couple of years through COVID, hey? Well, thanks. Thanks so much for coming on board. You were one of the first people that I had on the list of people that I, I wanted to, to bring on to the Unlock Moment because you've had such an extraordinary career journey and I'm looking forward to hearing all about it. So tell me a little bit about where this all started for you. So, you know, where were you when you first decided that you did want to be a doctor? Were you one of those very, you know, young kids who always wanted to do it or it came to you a little bit later? Uh, well, I think certainly it came to me a bit later. I actually wanted to be a pilot when I was a young kid. Um, and, and that was fueled through uh, my passion for like uh, airplane models. Um, and I think uh, my thought processes sort of meandered um, as uh, I went from, you know, this kind of notion of being a, a pilot um, to someone who ought to fix planes as well as fly them, because if something went wrong, what would happen? Um, to um, more serious conversations and introspection around what I actually liked as subjects at school. And I think um, as I got to uh, uh, kind of the sixth form time where you have to make some key decisions about um, A-levels and things, um, I came to realize I really liked the STEM subjects. You know, I, was a, I like science. Um, I really loved biology and understanding how, um, you know, form and function came together in the human body. And I guess, uh, a kind of love for helping people um 
and and that those two things were kind of a, a massive draw towards a vocational career um you know in medicine or dentistry or any of those sorts of um kind of career paths um but i also was massively interested in business um you know i was brought up in a family which was relatively entrepreneurial um uh, first generation uh, sort of immigrants from uh uganda my dad and india uh, my mum and so you know this notion of like um revenue margin um uh, product mix proposition you know all these sorts of things albeit i didn't know the words necessarily but i understood the underlying principles also was leading me to careers in like finance and consulting and and um these sorts of areas um however you know with medicine at that time i didn't think there was a second opportunity you know i either did it then or i never did it thereafter and so um you know be it an honorable profession and a career for life i decided to take the jump um and and take appropriate a level subjects i did maths further maths uh chemistry and biology um and was very fortunate enough to uh, actually i got into cambridge um but got deferred by a year and and that's how i actually ended up in uh, bristol Oh, how interesting. I, I never yeah. knew that. Yeah, indeed. Um, and, you know, my time at Bristol was an interesting one. Um, thoroughly uh, hated Bristol, actually, the first year, uh, because London was like the big bad city where I came from. And um, Bristol kind of couldn't compare in any way, shape or form. And it was only after the, the, the end of the first year that I started to kind of feel an enormous amount of love for Bristol and uh, for what it stood for. And, you know, I, I was there for 11 years in total um, as a result of that love, frankly. Um, but it's, it was interesting. The first couple of years, you know, as people do at university, I had a really good time. Um, and I decided that I would intercalate um, to make myself uh, more competitive when it came to the job market in medicine. And um, it was at that time that a few things happened for me, I guess. Um, one, the a number of lectures really died down because um, I integrated in pathology. Um, and so I found myself with much more time. And in that time, my head sort of started meandering again. Um, and I started um, uh, actually was reading the Sunday Times one, one Sunday and found a competition um, sponsored by the Times and, and KPMG um, around uh, basically writing a business plan for a charity to meet one of their objectives. And, you know, for some strange reason, um, and it's probably because there was a five grand prize, I think, if I remember correctly, attached to it, I decided that I would just, you know, give it a go. Um, and you probably well remember uh, Bristol Medical School is famous for a show called Clickendales. Mm -hmm. and, I um, remember it well. Yeah, uh, and you can imagine what that show's about. Um, I was never in it. <laughs> Neither was I, but as in a hilarious show. <laughs> um, but uh, Click uh, is is cancer and leukemia in childhood. It's a charity that um, the med students did the show for, and all the proceeds went to. And so I approached them around building a a, a telemedicine solution for children with cancer cancer in the southwest. And and you know I I took that from start to finish and actually applied into this competition and. Basically, that was my first foray into, um, I guess, business as an undergrad. And I won the Times KPMG Business Award for 2000 um, for that um, uh, business plan. And then subsequent to that, um, you know, I started my own um, 
kind of initiative. I didn't incorporate actually, but um, I started a, a prototype build for a electronic medical record based on a smart card. Um, and I went to VentureFest. Um, I, I won uh, prizes at the Bristol Enterprise Center and various other things. And, you know, it's really at this point that I started to feel this sense that there's possibility in doing other things other than the traditional track that I'd kind of picked in a vocation and, and moving through. And, yeah, it's hard to shake off that itch to do other stuff, I have to say. What's so interesting when I hear that story is remembering back, um, and there's a lot of people, you know, in Gen Zs of this world who who won't get this world where, you know, your your first foray into entrepreneurship came from reading the Sunday Times in real life on actual paper and discovering this competition, going into the competition. For me, I changed medical school I started Bristol. We were training at, at the same time. And then I transitioned to Cambridge. How I found out about that was there was a poster pinned to a poster board behind three other posters, so nobody else had spotted it. Um, and, you know, I think today, if I hadn't discovered that poster, if you never read that advert in that paper copy of the Sunday Times, you know, would our careers have gone in the direction they went in today with Facebook or whatever? They come and find you. You know, they, they're like, this person's going to be interested in my ad. I'm going to target them. So you can't avoid it as much. But actually, at the time, it did, you know, career paths did sometimes relate to a bit of sort of fate and fortune um, in, in, in that kind of way. So that's very interesting. And so your entrepreneurial spirit started quite early on in your medical training. It did, actually. And I, I actually failed my third year um, uh, final exams because I was at La Scala until three o'clock in the morning um, celebrating um, uh, getting the award, actually, um, in, in London. And, and I was absolutely shattered by the time I got back um, for my, my exam in the third year. But, you know, that, that taught me a number of things, as I mean, I'm sure many people who've been on this podcast before. Failure is not something that... Um, you know, people take lightly, but there's so many learnings from it that make you a better person, I think. Um, and, and, you know, that was an interesting time for me. Um, but after that, I was back on, um, you know, almost like final year of, of exams, knew I wanted to become a, a surgeon. Um, I got a professorial job with uh, Professor Farnden, who was, you know, the leading um, surgeon in the southwest um, and you know an academic surgeon and you know unfortunately in that final year he passed away so I never actually got to work uh, for him very tragically actually um, in the medical school and so um, you, you know it was it was, um, yeah, it was kind of a weird time transitioning it almost made me want to do better than I would have done normally I guess um, you know more conviction uh, to do a good job while I was on while I was on his firm, but I had a terrific time as a junior doctor um, in uh, um, the Bristol Royal Infirmary, and you know I took up a number of roles at that point. I I was um, junior doctor's mess president, uh, so looked after all the social activities in the hospital, and um, started to work for the BMA as their kind of junior doctor's rep for the southwest. Um, and and I took a you... traditional route after that, I guess. And what did you most love about that work? Do you know what? The camaraderie um, between the junior doctors and the other, obviously, doctors higher up, all the way up to consultant, but also all the allied healthcare professionals, the nurses. And 
um, you know, physios and whatnot. I mean, the, the reality of life is, you know, worked in some very stressful environments, um, long hours and a lot of um, people, you know, getting to the end of their tether, tension, words said that, you know, you wouldn't normally say in teams. And, and, and that fueled a level of, I don't know, relationship building and authenticity when you, you know, settled the, the scores and, you know, dusted off what happened and, and so kind of appraised it again uh, with, with some of the, the teams, which was just unparalleled for me. Um, and, you know, the trust that you, you developed between those teams, it was just, I don't think I've experienced that really in any other environment. Maybe LEK for a while, but the stakes were not as not as high, you know, that delivering recommendations on strategy and M&A are quite different to saving someone's life, in my view, um, you know, from a perspective point. Um, but that that sort of level of camaraderie started to establish in my new new business with my co-founders. You know, we had to build that level of trust to be able to work together around an opportunity where we weren't going to earn any money for like several months to even over a year now. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you're in that environment, in that incredible team with all of that trust and you were building your career. So you'd qualify for medical school and you were building through the early years of your surgical career. So talk to me about how your feeling about your medical career started to change over time. Well, um, I think it, it first started with some dissatisfaction um, and that came in a number of guises. Um, and I guess the, the, the first thing was, uh, you know, medical careers had started to change. And so the European Working Time Directive had started to creep in um, and be implemented. So just for any given year of tenure, um, medic, you know, any medic was basically, they'd spent less hours on the ward or less hours in, in theatre. And in my view, a lot of medicine is an apprenticeship. You know, the more you do, the better you get. It's experiential. Um, And so I could see already at that point um, that, you know, my seniors were spending more time in theatre because the new guys that were coming and girls that were coming through, for example, just didn't have the experience. Um, And and it almost felt like they, they didn't have the conviction at that point to really make a success of any job that they were doing, even though that might not be the specialty that they were going to end up being in. And that, that you know, just didn't start to gel for me, really, um, in the moment. But also, if you fast forward and, and, and I become a consultant at some point, um, you know, I couldn't see how I would, the work-life balance scenario was going to get better. If anything, it was going to get worse. Um, remuneration would stay the same if, if, if at best. So... Um, that that was a sort of started to be a bit of a disappointment. The other thing was, as you know, from our year at medical school, um, the intake had just doubled, right? And subsequently, more and more medical students were going through. And without um, appropriate career planning for all of these people coming through, there's there were not enough consultant posts at the time when when I was going through, and. Um, you know, that caused a lot of pain for people. Um, they had to uproot their lives and do fellowships whilst the consultant post was sort of being made available. But for me, the issue was, you know, I wanted choice. I wanted to be an academic surgeon. I wanted to come back to London. And if after 12 years, 13 years of training, I didn't have that level of choice, um, 
then it, that was sort of unacceptable to me. Um, and I was kind of unwilling to take make the investment to get to that point um, even further. And I guess all of these things sort of came together with the fact that uh, it's very difficult to change things in the NHS. And I'm a natural um, sort of operator in the sense that I look at things and the way things are done, and I always want to do them better, whether that's a, a different process, whether it's um, using technology or whatever it might be. And I just didn't feel that, my, you know, me as one person in this entire organization, I could make an impact in that and that um, I, I would be better off stepping outside of that organization and trying to make an impact on my own terms or, or, or under a different guise. What's so interesting for me listening to the story you tell is that it's so consistent in certain themes with so many other doctors that I've spoken to who either have taken the decision to leave the profession or are seriously considering doing so. And it's this mix of, on the one hand, what's amazing and unique about the job is you're helping people, you're saving lives, you're in this team with this level of trust because together you're doing something that none of you can, just none of you can do on your own. And the things that people find so frustrating to the point that they're willing to give all that other stuff up is to do with career pathing and opportunity and the simple practicalities of the way the system is set up and the inability to change. And it's been like that for a very, very long time. I remember my own experience. I remember having a conversation with um, at one of the transplant consultant transplant surgeons when I was qualifying. Um, and I didn't know the answer to these questions. So I genuinely asked, you know, from, from, from a, from perspective of learning, I said, how many consultant transplant surgeons are there in the UK? And the answer was something like 20. And I said, and how many people at the next level down are sufficiently qualified and experienced that if a role came up, they could reasonably get it and do it? And he said about 200. And so you think about the equation, you think, well, the 20 are not all retiring at the same time, but when one of them does, 200 people are ready to apply for that job. And if for the best one, they're going to get their role. And for the other 199, they've got to wait for the next role or move to a different country or change career, not because they want to, but because they've run out of options. And, and you know, that that's not an easy problem at all to solve. But I think it's quite important to bring that to life because a lot of people, I think, struggle to understand why doctors don't want to continue working in the NHS. But And it's not because of the patients. It's not because of the team. It's not because of all of those factors so it's 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 really interesting to to hear that yeah and I, I mean i should add people often ask me what was it you didn't like surgery and you know i have a fundamental love for being able to make people better with my hands not far you know not using pharmacy pharmacological products and tablets and things like that but actually physically taking them to theater and then you know there's an outcome that's almost immediate after that intervention um and you know there's no i don't think there's anything else that can for me at least that can be so immediately gratifying so this unlock moment of remarkable clarity when you figured out that you were going to change what, what was happening at that time and and what made that the moment of clarity yeah i mean so i've been musing a lot about um, also, this desire to continue to do something in business, whether it's entrepreneurialism 
or something else. So that that had always been a draw since undergraduate years anyway. Um, and I guess uh, my final job was a reg job in Manchester. And I guess all of my all of my concerns and reservations about my career they were sort of accentuated during that job. Um, and you know there was there was sort of um, a process for me which was like you know what do I do other than this because the business world is not so programmatic in in terms of career paths it's not vocational in the same you know linear path that medicine is and so facing into the ambiguity or the uncertainty or the plethora of choices was really quite difficult and and I um you know I went to a bunch of career fairs almost revisited um, uh, you know, my A-level, A-level days where I, you know, want, wanted to learn more about different careers and, and looked at, you know, consulting, which where you may remember we met at, um, the careers fair in Bristol, uh, at a stall, right? Um, so I revisited all of these things, um, about myself and what's available out there. And, um, you know, I picked three kind of paths because again, how do you, how do you hedge for the uncertainty of, of what might happen? So I started preparing for the um, GMAT to be able to apply for business school as a way of diversifying my career. Um, I looked at roles in pharma, which could lead to a career in something more commercial. And I also went down the route of looking at um, consulting firms and applying to those uh, strategy and M&A consulting firms to really understand whether I could go down that route and get a generalist um, kind of foundation around big business and how strategy works and, you know, how P&Ls work and all that kind of stuff. And did you already know that you were leaving in your mind or did it take going to these events to help you to make that decision? When did you actually know that you were going? (laughs) That's a that's a very good question. I think I I only knew that I was going after I got some offers to leave, and um, I sat down with now my wife Uzma, who you know we all went to medical school together, and we discussed finally the pros and cons of actually executing on any one of those offers. Um, what what would that look like going forwards? So you had a spreadsheet of some kind, something like <laughs> a way of weighing it up. I could I could barely use spreadsheets at that point, to be <laughs> perfectly honest. So it was a piece of paper with pro and con and a list. No weightings. Interesting. And could there have been a possibility that you could have been sitting there with an offer to go and do something different and you decide not to? No, I think I think um, in answer to that question, I think it was a foregone conclusion, um, and I wouldn't have continued with the process of exploring other um, uh, kind of pathways if I wasn't resolved to go. I think in hindsight, um, but in my head, you know, I, I hadn't taken the active step of like giving in my notice, so it, it wasn't a fait accompli until it was done, basically. So. Um, you know, there was a lot of uh, anxiety around the decision for lots of different reasons, you know, whether it's external perceptions or 
what my family might think. My consultant at the time thought I was like crazy bonkers. Um, uh, to you know, where do these career paths go? Most of them will pay me, you know, a th- at least thirty-three to half, thirty-three percent to fifty percent of what I was earning at that point because I was almost you know retraining. Um, so there was a there was a lot many 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 factors you know not least that m- most of those offers were um, re- required relocation from Bristol to London which Uzma didn't want at the time um, so there was quite a lot of uh, things to consider in the round and get over um, before we could you know definitively or I could definitively make that decision. So a lot of things on the on the negative side of the not very well built spreadsheet um (laughs) what was the strongest thing for you on the positive side that made you make the decision to go probably the fact that um i'm in control of my own destiny um you know it was a a moment of taking control rather than being subservient to like what i was dealt with or the situation that i was in um and and actually taking the, an active step um and there's that saying isn't there um if you if you uh, uh expect a different result then don't keep doing the same thing or words to that effect you know if you you have to change um and you have to make a change and for these sorts of things you need to take control of that change rather than let it happen to you um and i think really that 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 you know that realization was one and I think the other realization was the fact that um, there, you know, as a person, as an individual, even if you're a medic or whatever you've been doing, it is possible. There is possibility in doing other things, even becoming the prime minister or flying to the moon or whatever it might be. And unless you're resolved and and can understand that there is that possibility, you're never going to make even you're not even going to put one foot towards trying to get there um you know so i think those two things and the backing of people around me so obviously my immediate family and uzma were critical um councils if you like and sounding boards for me and if i didn't get their support and their support didn't come in endorsement or um uh kind of uh what's the right or wrong answer it was just the ability to talk to someone almost very dispassionately about something and, and analytically weigh the pros and cons of it. But the decision was always mine. And, and it was like a, a supportive conversation rather than a constructive conversation. There's something very particular about leaving medicine. Maybe this is true for other professions as well. But in medicine, it's pretty difficult to leave and then go back. Because what I say to people is, people don't leave medicine. It's not, it's not a career that you'd leave. Uh, it's not the done thing. It's not considered positively. And in a world where within the medical career, as you get high up the tree, it's incredibly competitive to get roles. If you're the person that has on your CV that at some point I wanted to do something different and quit and then it didn't work out, then I came back and tried to sort of ingratiate myself back into the system. When I left, I remember just knowing that the decision I was making now was one that I could not go back on. And so I've talked a lot to people about the idea of failing forward and going, I don't know whether this next thing's going to work, but if it doesn't, then the next step can't be 
go backwards into what I'd just come from. How did you feel about leaving? Did you feel that same sense of this is a not going back kind of moment? Or did you feel there was an option for you that you could have gone back and carried on where you were before if it didn't work out? So I think um, for me, uh, philosophically, however you want to put it, it was a moment of never going back. It, you know, it wasn't going to happen. The only practical reason why I might go back um, to medicine would be only twofold. One, I needed money and I couldn't get money anywhere else. And so I fall back into the profession that I knew best. Um, and, and you know, that, that, that would have been a, a, a kind of, you know, based on real dire need, frankly. Um, the other reason would be COVID type scenarios where for the greater good of the world um, more doctors need to be on the front line and so you know I, I had my um, you know limited registration re reinstated to full registration with a, with a requirement to, to, to go back but having three children to homeschool and my wife on the front line it was very difficult for me to obviously go and do that but um, uh, th those those in my head would be the only two reasons but otherwise I, I I didn't think I would be looking in the rearview mirror. Mm. I felt the same. COVID for me was the first time, you know, and I left medicine earlier than you. I think I probably I left medicine in two thousand and four. So it was you know COVID was sixteen years after I'd ever picked up a syringe in in, in anger. Um, and I went and did my vaccinated training. Um, and, and then really frustratingly, in my region of the country, they didn't want any volunteer vaccinated. So I never gave a single vaccine but I was like I'm here I'll go and do the training I did the training on a Sunday you know rushed around to everything sorted out got my uniform and then I, I couldn't actually stick a needle into anybody because you know they had enough provision from the health service so it was a bit of a shame but standing on the edge of the diving board then knowing that when you stepped off there was no going back how did that feel I mean when I did it um life was chaotic because we we then you know I moved I was sort of temporary living in Manchester but moved back to Bristol with Isma um, I had to wrap up my flat sell it and various logistical things for a period of two or three months before we moved to London and um, probably the, the point at which so I was too busy to really consider whether I was going to hit a rock if i I jumped off the cliff if you like um but you know it it was i started lek the week um after my birthday and uzma took me to barcelona and actually that that was amazing um i felt really liberated hard not to feel good in barcelona frankly but um you know i felt very liberated um that i'd taken that step that, that on monday i would be you know not donning any um, blues or gloves or seeing any patients I'm actually going into an office um, mm. and and the excitement and energy around what that could look like from mm. day one maybe day three day you know week two uh, mm. I mean that that was so energizing um, and for the listeners benefit LEK is a consulting firm so it's a it's a business management consulting firm that you were you're in the office again, you know, we were working to, together there because yeah. something I said clearly in Bristol encouraged you to, <laughs> to, <laughs> to come and join the LEK family, which was, which was, and it was great to have you 
on the team. So, so this one thing, something I find very interesting in your career is that you've been through two career changes that have have represented a, an increase in risk and a probably a decrease in in income. So, the first was from successful surgeon, uh, you know, to first year or, or, you know, to early stage in a consulting firm. And as you said, you know, very significant salary drop that you needed to swallow at that time because you were going back into retraining. And then fast forward a few years. So you've made it through the ranks in consulting and then into, you know, the senior roles in a global healthcare firm in in, in Bupa. Um, and, and you've kind of been in an internal entrepreneur type function, really, hadn't you, at, at, at that time? And talk to me about the kind of things that you were doing there and then this transition to being, you know, founding your own business. What did that look like? Yeah, I mean, innovation and venture building um, companies, corporates is difficult. Um, you know, the, the, the only reason why I stayed to do that role was was really because we had agreed as part of me doing that role, that, that there will be certain things, you know, factors, environmental factors that we put in place. So the ability to um, uh, spin the entity out and uh, raise independently of Bupa um, was one of those factors, for example. Um, incentivization, which wasn't your traditional salary style incentivization, was another um, factor. Now, the reality of life is, you know, Corporates are very good at um, kind of committing to these things, um, but then undoing them as time goes by. And, um, you know, that creates a lot of um, pressure and anxiety amongst, um, you know, people who are working in these ventures. Um, and it doesn't give you wings. Um, you know, it's not the Red Bull that you need, frankly. Um, and so they, they, you know, it, it was a really interesting experience. I mean, I, I built Booper on Demand, which was a pay-as-you-go um, healthcare marketplace. And we scaled that business to about £7 million of annualised revenue. But, it, you know, just the, the processes, the systems, you're very shackled um, around what you can do because we weren't able to spin out and we were, um, I, or I was incubating that um, proposition within a regulated business within Bupa insurance business. So um, it, I get I got to points of frustration, a bit like when I was in in medicine, frankly, that you know the levers of autonomy that you had, whether it's capital flows, whether it was a decision to hire people, whether it was um, you know how you deploy marketing budget, what platforms you choose, um, they just diminished over time, um, and. Uh, you know, if I get fidgety and frustrated like that, then I generally do something about it um, is, is the way that I work. And, and actually, it came up at a point in my life. I turned 40 um, in 2018. And, and you know, I sort I don't know, you get reflective over time, don't you? Let's face it, with age. And, um, you know, first couple of grey hairs appeared and whatnot. And, um, you know, I, I kind of said to my wife, I've done a lot of things so far in my career. Um, maybe I should do things on my own terms, right? And and I can see a lot of problems in the way things have been done in certain aspects of healthcare service delivery or financing or whatever it might be. 
or maybe I can impact that by doing this thing on my own terms um, in a faster, bigger way. And it is a bet. And, you know, I'm taking a big swing. But I do like to think that I live life without regrets. And if I truly, authentically honour that being, then I've got to go and do this. And I've got to leave where I am, albeit it's a very safe, protective environment. We can have really nice holidays. Our kids can go to private school. Um, you know, you can work one morning a week and, you know, life is just hunky-dory. But, but I need to go through the pain because otherwise I won't be true to myself. And I will look back after five, six, seven, eight years if I just continue what I'm doing, going kind of, I wish I'd done this, you know, even if it fails. Even if it failed, I wish I'd done it. So that, that's, that's where we are. I'm constantly doing that. Like, do I still live today with no regrets? Yes, I do. And therefore, I'm still honouring that, that feeling that is really important to me. That's so powerful when you describe, even if it fails, there's this compulsion to do it. I'm sure you're better at spreadsheets now than, than you were back in the day. But I imagine that your spreadsheet of pros and cons that you would have had at that point in your career, the pros and cons, would they have been much different from the pros and cons that you looked at at the end of your medical career? Do you know what? I think the stakes are a lot higher now. Um, and, and I, you know, what rings true is your point around taking more and more risk. I do feel like personally I've taken a lot more, um, you know, Firstly, I've got family to support. Back then, I didn't, right? Um, and, uh, you know, that I'm in the prime earning years of my life, if you like, and I for, I'm foregoing um, the, the ability to do that, to pursue Peachy, for example. So um, I think the stakes are a lot higher, and they're a lot higher for the people around me too who have joined me on this adventure. So um, I do feel a sense like a major sense of responsibility. And I literally, I've just come off, before talking to you, I've just come off to uh, a potential investor into our business who is a school friend of mine. And he was like, come on, just chill out. What, what's up with you? You know, I'm a mate of yours. Yeah, of course, I understand. It's, it's risk capital, all this kind of stuff. And I couldn't, I, I think I've kind of oversold the, the, the responsibility that I have to him as an investor to want him to understand, you know, what I'm doing and the product that I'm building and all that kind of stuff. He, he was just, he thought it was laughable, you know. So I am taking this very seriously, believe it or not. What drives you to want to take this risk and this responsibility on at this point in time more than anything else? Well, one, I mean, clearly I see an opportunity. There's a commercial opportunity to do it. Um, I think... You know, I, I didn't want to work under anyone else's terms um, to pursue that opportunity, which is why I've stepped out. Um, and, and, you know, for for me, there's this um, ambition, yeah, to build something um, and, and to know that the first brick I put down um, to the very last brick and the windows and the floors and the roof and, and all of that, you know, it wouldn't have happened unless I laid those foundations. Um, and, and it's really the first opportunity that I've had to be able to build what I think is a fitting culture for a company, because 
you know, being in big entities, you can't impact the culture. You have to almost um, work with it. Whereas, you know, I'm I'm very demanding. I'm non-accepting of certain behaviors and certain things. Um, and I'm a very can-do person. And all the people around me find that challenging. But um, they come and join me on these sorts of journeys because they want to feel that too. They want to get entrenched in that too. Um, and that, I think, is just a different level of belief, a level of ambition, a level of possibility, which I haven't personally felt in other companies. And where does the ambition come from? I think that comes fundamentally from my parents. Um, you know, they instilled um, doing better, uh, getting, you know, learning all the time, um, uh, doing the right thing. The, the, these sorts of things and and it, you know it's it's not really a material thing i think ma- material things are consequences of this underlying thing but you know for me i've got my own family i've got three beautiful daughters i want them to look up to someone in their family as a figurehead who has done some amazing things right whether that's built a company whether it's you know um, use technology in a particular way, whether that's made loads of money at some point, hopefully, um, <laughs> I don't know, but some, you know, that, that kind of um, sense of, you know, wow, we've gone from nothing to something, whether that's team size or office size or products and proposition, you know, I, it's something along those lines, it's sort of many, it takes many dimensions for me. Um, and, and, and also I always temperature check that um, with what other people say about me and what I'm doing. And and I know then that I'm on the right course and this is all worth it or not. What does authenticity mean to you? For me, it's about, um, I guess it's about this um, ultimate trust and honesty and integrity um, that you exchange with other people that that's what that is for me um and you know that means you know no back chat it means direct conversations whether they're difficult or not um uh and and everyone knows where they stand and you know darren my cto will tell you i can be very authentic because we've had some very difficult conversations early on um, I mean, to the point where he probably thought, God, this guy is crazy. Like, did he really say that to me? But I was just being honest. Yeah. And and I'd rather be honest, get it off my chest. And, and I don't I mean to hurt people or say it in a negative way, but just, you know, clear, clear, clear what I'm feeling out to someone so they know, you know, how I feel about something. And, and I want them to reciprocate back exactly in the same way. And then only do I think you find gra- middle grounds of, of union and trust, which lay the foundations for, for your relationship going forwards and to be able to do bigger things. And I, and I, I feel that that relationship building piece without that, I wouldn't be where I am right now because, you know, whether it's you or anyone else that has made an impact in my life, um, I always seek to have authentic conversations with you guys. When I listen to you talking, I can hear 
the power for you of conviction, passion, belief in what you're doing and why you're doing it. And there have been moments, as we talked about, through this journey where you have taken the harder path deliberately to do something that that really means something very important to you. So, you know, if you look forward in 10 or 20 years, what what would you like to look back on and be proud of having achieved in that time? Well, um, I think if, if, you know, I would like to think that Peachy will become a success and, and, and look back on that. And even if it doesn't, that we've um, moved with, with conviction, we've pivoted and we've smartly done something with the company which basically impacts the world of healthcare for people. That, that's, that's really what we're here to do, right? Um, it's to get people the care that they need when they need it, right? And obviously it costs money, so we've, we're providing a financing solution to enable that. Um, and if I can make one small dent in, in that space, whether it's us personally or it's us through others because they've seen what we've done, even if we've not been a success, then for me, that's success in its own right. That's amazing. So who who out there should be looking at Peachy and going, this is a company that I need to be finding out more about and, and maybe you know engaging with? Who, who, who are those target customers for you? And what is it about Peachy that, that can help them? Well, we're, we're effectively targeting millennials and small and micro enterprises when we uh, end up launching our SME product, which will be at the um, six-month point of launch when we come out of the Financial Conduct Authority sandbox. And, and what we're trying to do is effectively create a product which is more inclusive um, and more digital and more targeted to customers that don't traditionally access private healthcare. However, you know, given where we are with the state of um, the NHS and waiting times and, um, and, and our kind of renewed understanding or, or, of, of health is wealth after COVID, I think we're a company that are trying to make that whole process um, possible as an option for someone to go private and then to make the customer journey uh, much simpler and more digital, a bit like how you would use a, a digital bank account like Starling or, or some of these other um, uh, banks. And, and so, you know, we're, we're the new kid on the block. We're here to change things up and we're here to use technology and data to make life much more efficient for people. And if you were talking to another 40-year-old person, senior in a corporate role, who's thinking about taking the leap and, and doing their own thing, from your experience of, of, of your first while with, with Peachy, what advice would you give them? It's, it's, it's a rocky road, so make sure that you've got the conviction to go after it. Um, you're going to have to face into uncertainty, bigger uncertainty than, than you probably faced in your entire career. Um, financially, it can be devastating. And so you've got to have the ability to hustle and hustle hard so that you can maintain a level of income that supports your family, but also... Um, enables you to fuel the growth of whatever you're doing in in a way that um, uh, basically get, makes it go fast. Because the one thing that none of us at this age we, we really have is time on our side. 
we, we haven't got time to, to slow things down. And I think the final thing is if you're bootstrapping, and, and this is probably nuanced to me a little bit, um, it's a very different mindset to spending a corporate budget that you've been allocated versus, you know, your own money, which basically is the shit off your own back, right? And and you've got to finally get into that mindset where everyone understands like cautious spending if it's your own money, etc. But you've got to know where to spend the money and how to deploy it quickly to move to your next milestone. And I think for me, that was the biggest adjustment when it came to spending my own cash. Um, so probably those, those are the, 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 the major things I, I would say. And probably one other thing, don't underestimate your relationships. By the time you're 40, you have got many, many relationships across different walks of life, different careers, ge geographies. Never underestimate the power of unlocking those relationships for your endeavours. Um, and, and I think that is absolutely critical. And probably I knew about it. I tried to execute it, but didn't recognize enough of that. And I'm beginning to realize the fruits of the investment in relationships that I've put in over the years now. Amazing. What does the timeline look like from, from here? And where are pe when are people going to be able to see and use Peachy for the first time, do you think? So Peachy's launching in June, um, the, the latter half. Um, so it will be available for individuals first. Um, and as I mentioned, we're in what's called the Financial Conduct Authority Sandbox. So we're the first health insurtech um, to be in that. Um, it has some constraints while we test and trial the platform, um, make sure things work operationally. So we can only sell policies to 250 customers and we can't launch our SME product. So that all of those um, caps with uh, a good headwind will be released um, in six months time and, and then we'll have more products out. But yeah, check us out on LinkedIn. Um, our web pages are all live at uh, www.pg.health. Um, and, and, you know, tap me up. Um, happy to have a coffee in our office in Hackney. Fantastic. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. For surgeon, strategist and health tech entrepreneur Amit Patel, it was the decision to take ownership of his future path that gave him the confidence to quit his medical career, strike out on his own, and ultimately to found the peachy health tech business for millennials and SMEs that he's now about to launch. Amit, thank you so much for joining me today on The Unlock Moment. Thank you, Gary. This has been The Unlock Moment, a podcast with me, Dr. Gary Crotez. Thank you for listening in. You can find out more about how to figure out what you want and how to get it in my book, the Idea Mindset, available in physical book, ebook, and audiobook formats. Follow me on Instagram and subscribe to this podcast to get notified about future episodes. Join me again soon.